0: Good morning, so good to see you once again. We're in a new series, still in the book of James, entitled Greater Than Average. The reason why is God wants you to live a greater than average life. I don't know how you did in school, I can tell you I did in school, I did about a 2.5. So, you don't have to live a 2.5 in life even if you didn't school a can stand for more than average. It can stand for abundant, and that's what Jesus wants to do. James chapter 4, we're going to pick our study up right where we left off a week ago. Now, just to help you remember where we're at in this book of James, James is really kind of letting us have it with both barrels. He's really challenging us to pursue lives that are holy. You remember what he said last week in James 4 and verse 4, you adulterers and adulteresses. I mean, this is hardcore language, right? He says, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He uses that language because we learn that the church is the bride of Christ. You remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, that God is jealous over us with a godly jealousy, for we've been betrothed to one husband, that we may be presented to Christ as a chaste virgin bride. Ephesians 5, 27, Jesus died so that we might be presented to him a glorious church, not Having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. And we saw last week how we are that chaste virgin, bright white bride of Christ that's called to be holy, a chaste bride, a chaste bride. But every time we sin, it's as though we have another lover. It's as though we cheat on him spiritually. It's called spiritual adultery. He's called us to be a spotless bride, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. But every time we sin, it's as though we choose sin over him. It's as though we love our junk more than we love Jesus. And all of a sudden, that bright white bride has become spotted with the sin and the stain and the shame of this world. And so he's going to continue that very same message, right here we'll begin now, in James chapter 4, it's that same thought he's going to continue right here in James 4 and verse 7. Are you ready for this? Yes. No, you're not ready for this. Trust me, you're not. I mean, because he's like just unloading, I mean, like week after week here, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't write this. You remember that, yes? I'm just a guy called to preach it. Now watch this, all right? This, this is tough stuff. Well, He says in verse 7, therefore... Since you're called to be that chaste bride, since you're called to be that holy bride, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded." Lament and mourn and weep. He's talking about how should we respond to our sin. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. As you can see, this text is not really the happy, clappy, pep rally. I mean, it really is. It's it's a sense of seriousness and sobriety as it pertains to our sin. And honestly, guys, we have our wrong view of God sometimes in our life. We have the wrong image of Jesus in our mind's eye. When you look at a text like this, you realize there's another view of Jesus that we need to get a hold of. When we talked about the Lamb of God and we sing about today the Lion of the tribe of Judah, understand, as the Lamb of God, Jesus came to suffer for our sin. But as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he's coming back to conquer the world because of sin. You see, as the Lamb of God, He suffered for us. But as the Lion of God, He comes to judge us. And sometimes, honestly, we just have this one view of God. We think God is just kind of this grandfatherly figure in the sky with this long white beard, kind of rocking on His rocking chair, just kind of looking down and winking at our sin. I'm just telling you, that's not who God is at all. Uh, He is so much more than we can fathom. And sometimes we just have the wrong view of Jesus I don't know about you, when you picture Jesus, uh, you may picture Jesus like this. This is how sometimes I used to picture Jesus. So this picture of Jesus is probably the picture that is hung in more dining room walls in America than any other picture anywhere. So this picture is actually in my mother-in-law's dining room hall, wall, and honestly, it probably still is to this day, probably in your grandmother's dining room wall somewhere, gentle Jesus. I mean, look at him. He's not a threat to anybody, and he's gentle and uh, he's full of compassion, and he's not going to make any commands and makes no demands, right? So there's one view of Jesus. Here's another view of Jesus. There's Jesus. He loves children. Loves to bounce children on his knees, right? The gentle Jesus that loves children, suffer the little children to come unto me. He's definitely not a threat to anybody, is he? Uh, then you have this Jesus, the Jesus that carries livestock around with him. <laughs> Even though there's not one text anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus ever carried livestock around with him. But the ever-popular image of Jesus of holding, holding this lamb and stroking this little sheep, and he's the gentle Jesus, isn't he? But here's another image of Jesus that we need to get a hold of in our lives. It was very popular during the Renaissance era. A lot of Renaissance art as uh, artwork that, you know, Jesus, one day, he goes in, he cleanses the temple, and he flips over the tables, and he drives out the money, chambers, uh, money changers. And, and so here's this Renaissance artist, and a lot of Renaissance art, and I think they all kind of all short of what would happen that day. But here's Jesus. He's not stroking a little lamb. He's holding a whip in his hand and he's driving out the money changers. And I want you to see in some way, that's what Jesus wants to do even today in our day. Yes, he's the lamb of God, but he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And on this day, as he drove out the money changers from the temple, he was declaring war on sin that had defiled this holy place, this sacred place. And you can read about it in John two, it says this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Basically, when the Jews would come to the temple, uh, they used Roman coin, but the temple would only take Jewish coin, which was shekels. And so just like today, you go to another country, you got to get your money changed. Well, they would go to the temple and they would get their money changed from Roman to the Jewish shekel. And what was happening is the money changers were ripping people off. I mean, they were thieves. That's why he calls it a den of thieves. And then they would buy, you know, the turtle dove or the lambs to do the sacrifices with, and they were ripping them off too. And Jesus is infuriated this day. I mean, he comes unglued. Look at what it says. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. We might put it in these terms. Jesus went off. No more gentle little Jesus bouncing children on his knees. Jesus went off this day. I mean, he like blew a gasket. He gets a whip and he starts driving people out. He's flipping the tables. Now listen carefully, you can be angry without sin. Jesus never ever sinned, but he is the visible image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 tells us. You wanna know who God is and what God is, look no farther than Jesus, and all of a sudden you can see the anger at sin that God has, as Jesus, who is the image of God, is so offended by what he has seen in this holy house of God, that he begins driving people out. He was angry, but he did not sin. He was flipping over the tables, Let me me ask you what tables do you need to flip over in your life today what tables do you need to flip over that table is that area of sin in your life that keeps you separated from God that keeps you from drawing near to God I'm going to tell you listen a lot of us have made a peaceful coalition with our sin but I want you to understand sin makes God mad Makes him angry because he's holy, and more importantly, because he loves you so infinitely, he knows sin will eventually take you to a place of slavery and captivity. Jesus went into the temple that day, and he went off. He was angry, flipping over tables. What tables does Jesus wanna flip in your life today? Let me ask you, if Jesus were to come to the house of God today, Would we get the lamb or would we get the lion? You see, we learned last week that the church is the bride of Christ, but do you know also that we are the temple of God? And in the same way that Jesus cleansed the temple in his day, he wants to cleanse the temple in our day. In the same way Jesus cleansed the temple when he was here literally 2,000 years ago, he wants to bring cleansing to our lives. You see, the Old Testament is a picture of the New Testament. And just like in the Old Testament, the temple, and before that the tabernacle, was a physical habitation, the physical house of God where God stayed. Check this out. In the New Testament, we are the house of God. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You see, in the Old Testament, it was a literal temple, a literal house, a literal building. In the New Testament, the temple is a spiritual building. The Apostle Peter would say that we are living stones. It is being built up together into a spiritual house, a spiritual, living, breathing building. We are indeed the temple of God individually, my body, and we are the temple of God corporately as the church. And do you know that just like in the Old Testament, that temple had an outer court, inner court, and holy of holies. And all of that is a picture of what God would do in the New Testament. Do you know the temple today also has three courts? You have an outer court, that is your body. You have the inner court, that is your soul. And you have the holy of holies, the spirit within you that God's spirit dwells with too. You see, everything God did then, he pictures then because he said, listen, I'm going to do it again. And you see, the moment you became a Christian, you received the son of God, but you also received received the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God came to live in you. Your heart has become his home. This isn't just allegory, he lives in you literally. It's what Jesus called being born again. The moment you put your faith in him, God's Spirit gives life to your spirit, and your spirit becomes one then with God's Spirit. Your spirit becomes the Holy of Holies, the temple of God, where God dwells. Let me ask you, if Jesus brought cleansing to the temple then, what do you think he wants to do today? Listen, if Jesus was to walk in here literally and physically, would we get the lion or would we get the lamb? I'm convinced the church in America needs cleansing. I'm convinced our lives need cleansing. I'm convinced the temple needs cleansing. What tables would he start flipping? in our church today? What tables would he flip in your life today? I want you to see that there are tables that need turned over in your life. And James is gonna tell us how. James here tells us what to do. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You see, the reality is we only sin when we forget who we are and to whom we belong. You see, I've been bought at a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. That means the spirit of God has now taken up residency inside of me. I am indeed the temple of God. You realize you ain't just come to the house of God, you are the house of God. And when you leave the house of God, you take God's house with you. And what does that mean? It means he lives in you. He has purchased you. He has bought you. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That means the moment I became a Christian, uh, somebody else took possession. I'm under new ownership. I know who I am, I know whose I am. What does that mean exactly? It means because this body is not mine, it belongs to him. This temple is not mine, this temple belongs to him. That means it ought to govern every single decision. I know who I am, I'm a child of God, I know whose I am, I belong to God, I know that I've been bought by the blood of the Son of God, I know that I'm now filled with the Spirit of God, that makes every decision easy. Like, if I know who I am and whose I am, I'm a child of God, I belong to God, no I'm not going to make the decision to sleep with my girlfriend tonight even though I'd like to but we're not married because I'm a child of God I've been bought by the blood of the Son of God I am possessed now by the Spirit of God And this body isn't mine. These hands are not mine. These feet are not mine. This mouth is not mine. These eyes are not mine. This is the temple of the living God. I'm not gonna do anything to defile the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit now lives within me, right? I mean, if I know who I am and to whom I belong, I'm not gonna go out drinking, getting drunk in the Power Light District. Just not going to. You know why? Because I know who I am. I'm a child of God. I know whose I belong to. I belong to God. You see, that's what he's saying here. We've been bought out of price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. See, we don't belong to ourselves anymore as the temple of God. And that means for some of us, we need to start flipping some tables in our life. Jesus wants to bring cleansing to our lives the same way he brought cleansing to the temple when he was here physically on this earth and alive. And James is gonna tell us how there's three things. If you wanna bring cleansing to your life and you want God to bring cleansing in every area of your life, there are three things he says it's gonna take. First of all, submit to God's authority. It is always a matter of authority. It is always a matter of remembering to whom do we belong. First of all, submit to God's authority. Look at what he says here in verse seven. Therefore, he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Submit to God. As you submit to God, you naturally resist the devil. In the face of temptation, Ephesians six twelve says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And Satan is always firing those little darts of affliction and those darts of temptation. In the face of those moments of temptation, it's an act of submission. Who do you submit to? Whoever you submit to is the one that will rule you. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but as mere mortals, it is mandated that we live under a spiritual authority. As mere mortals, it is mandated that we will live under a spiritual master. You will either live under God's authority or you will live under Satan's authority. Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, the implication is that apart from the Son of God, we're not free. We are born already in captivity. We are born under satanic authority. That means we are destined to live a life in some way of captivity. But Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me, he said, I'm gonna set you free. I have come to preach liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. But here's the deal. Here's the catch. Authority and liberty go hand in hand. If you wanna live in the liberty of Christ, you gotta submit to the authority of Christ. And if indeed you will submit to the authority of Christ, here's what he says. I will give you life abundantly, John 10 and verse 10. Life triumphantly, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. A life victoriously, 1 Corinthians 15. A life of liberty, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Look at how the New Testament describes what ought to be the normal Christian life, a life of liberty lived abundantly, a life in power and authority victoriously, but it all hinges on you submitting to Jesus completely. Now watch this. When you don't submit to him, you submit to sin, and when you submit to sin, you automatically Submit to Satan. See, you will choose your master. You will either submit to the lordship of Christ or the lordship of Satan, and you choose your master every single day in the face of temptation. Now, why is this hard? I'll tell you why it's hard. Because let's be honest, Uh, Satan sets a very beautiful table, doesn't he? I mean, when the devil comes to you, understand, the devil never comes in red pajamas and a pitchfork with little bitty horns and little fire shooting out of his ears. That's not what he does, that would be way too obvious. What he does instead is he just sets a very beautiful table. I mean, it looks good, doesn't it? It's tempting, it's enticing. It's a thing of beauty. And for a lot of us here, we're dining with the devil. And when you dine with the devil, I promise the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. It may take 20 years to get there, but sin always eventually brings ruin. And what the devil wants you to do is go for the instant gratification instead of the long-term satisfaction. He he wants you to go for the short-term satisfaction and abandon your sanctification. And so it all begins with setting this beautiful table so that, you know, you might dine with him. Because I'm going to tell you, he he doesn't make it look like something you don't want to do. He knows those are things that you do want to do. I mean, think about this for just a moment. When I was a little boy, I never told my mother this. In fact, I never told anybody this till today, but I secretly wanted to be the Marlboro Man. (laughs) Now, a lot of you don't know who the Marlboro Man is. I'm dating myself, all right? The, The Marlboro Man was the guy that sold Marlboro cigarettes. And to this little boy, man, he looked like his guy's got the best life ever. I mean, the Marlboro man, he's strong, he's handsome, he's rugged, he rides around out in the West and the Rocky Mountains roping horses, and it's got to be awesome. Hey, it looks beautiful, it looks amazing. I want to be the Marlboro man. What he doesn't tell you is that 20 years later, the Marlboro man died hacking up his lungs. He really did. I've heard people say, well, Phil, I don't even know why people go out drinking. I was having a conversation some time back, and I don't even know why people go out drinking. I can't even understand why they would want to. I thought to myself, that's somebody who never went out drinking. (laughs) I I know why people go out drinking. It's fun. If sin wasn't fun, people wouldn't do it. I, I I know why people go out drinking. I used to go out drinking. You see, the Bible tells us sin is fun for a season, it's pleasurable for a season. The problem is Satan will never tell you eventually where it's going to take you. That he will set this beautiful table for you and just come and dine with me, and I promise it's going to be delicious and delectable. He's not going to tell you it's going to lead eventually to your ruin. Here's the reality: Dosekis the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be that guy? The most interesting man in the world. Yes, I am. And if I drink Dos Equis, I will be. The most interesting man in the world. What he's never gonna tell you is when you have one too many, you're gonna run off the road and kill yourself and probably somebody else. See, that's how the devil works. And what I'm trying to say, in the heat of temptation, whatever that table is that you dine with again and again and again, it's not done by way of suppression, but rather submission. Now, most people try to face temptation and overcome their sin through suppression. What is suppression? I'm really determined this time, self-determination. And through self determination, I'm gonna overcome this temptation. And it's like, I'm gonna just white knuckle grip my teeth. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not. I really mean it this time. I'm not gonna do it. Okay. <laughs> How many times have you done that? I know I have. Like, I'm really determined this time. I'm not gonna do it. And eventually, okay. Back at that table again. See, it's not suppression. Most people attempt to overcome temptation through suppression, self-determination, another New Year's resolution, behavior modification, self-reformation, I'm telling you, that will never lead to true transformation. The way you overcome sin and temptation is not by way of suppression, it's by way of submission. It is impossible in the heat of temptation to submit to sin while you're submitting to him. To whom will you submit to in the heat of temptation when you're trying to overcome that sin and not go back to that place of temptation? Remember whose you are and to whom you belong. You're a child of God, bought by the blood of the Son of God. You're now possessed by the Spirit of God so that you can live increasingly like God who's holy and sinless. Not that you'll ever become sinless, not here, but you will eventually sin less and less and less, and one day when you stand before him, you will then finally be sinless. You see, the reality is there are three phases to your salvation. A lot of people don't know this. Watch this. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10, 13. What happened when you called on Jesus is you got something the Bible called saved. You got saved. That's what the Bible calls it. Salvation, now salvation comes in three phases. There is justification, there is sanctification, and there is glorification. What is justification? It happens instantly. The moment you put your faith in him, he delivered you from sin's penalty instantly. He exonerated you of all your sinful actions you have ever done. He now declares you innocent. Justification, just as if you'd never sinned. But here's the deal: it doesn't stop there. Now I'm in this process of sanctification. And while justification happened instantly, the moment you place your faith in him, delivered from sin's penalty, sanctification happens gradually, happens daily from the moment you are justified to the moment you stand before him in heaven that's what's called being glorified everything in the middle is you are being sanctified what does that mean justified means you've been delivered from sin's penalty but sanctified means you're being delivered from sin's power and we don't just need to be delivered from what we have done we need to be delivered from what we are Because the problem is not merely what I've done, the symptoms, the problem is what I am. I do what I do because I am what I am. You see, the reality is I don't just need to be forgiven of my sin and sin's penalty, I need to be delivered from what I am and delivered from sin's power. And that's what God wants to do in your life, but only as you submit yourself completely to him. When Jesus is your master, when Jesus is that one that reigns over you in sovereignty and you give him complete authority, he promises to set you free and give you liberty, life abundantly. But if it's not Jesus, you're gonna have another master. And it will always lead to a life of captivity, a life of slavery. To whom you submit is the one that will obey. Now, the second thing is this. You gotta to learn to repent of sin continually. See, we, we learn to manage our sin. We learn to contain it. We learn to try to control it. We learn to make a peaceful coalition with it. Uh, we, we learn to have a peace treaty with our sin. I want you to notice something. When Jesus went into the temple that day, he was not there to make peace, he was there to make war. We need to look at our sin as something, I'm not making peace with it, I'm making war with it. Listen, Satan has declared war on you. How about if you began declaring war on him? Because whether or not you're at war, he's at war. And the problem for a lot of us, frankly, is we are prisoners and we're the worst kind of prisoner. We're prisoners unaware. We become Satan's little puppets and he can pull our little strings. Listen, Satan wants to make you his punk. He can pull your little strings anytime he pleases. But guess what, when you repent of sin continually, you disarm the enemy. See, sin is how he controls you, that's a little string. All of a sudden, you've taken back control and given it back to Jesus. Now look at what he says here in James four and verse eight. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. How do you draw near to God? You draw away from sin. As you draw away from sin, you naturally draw near to him. God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. So as you draw away from sin, you naturally draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, James alludes here to Psalm 24 in verse four. The psalmist asks, who can stand in the holy place? He answers his own question he that has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, if you wanna stand in the presence of God, if you want to live in the presence of God, if you want to be near God, you're going to have to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Now here's the reality, your hands always follow your heart. The hands have to do with what you do outwardly, the heart has to do with your condition inwardly. And I've told you before, the problem is not our sin. Sin is merely a symptom. The real issue is not your sinful actions. The real issue is that heart that still has not become a new creation. And so what he's saying is, you want to cleanse your hands, you're gonna to have to purify your heart. Let God purify your heart. Let God start to turn over some tables in your life. And I will promise when you do, the hands will follow the hearts. Your heart will define what you do outwardly because God is changing who you are inwardly. I want you to notice look at this language. We're not even used to using this language any longer, even in the modern church. Cleanse your hands, uh, you people that make mistakes. See, we don't even like using this word anymore, it's not even a part of the Christian vocabulary sin. We call sin, well, I made a mistake. A, a mistake is when you eat Taco Bell at 10.30 at night. That's a mistake. You will pay for it in the morning. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is when you knew what God said, but you ignored what God said and did your own thing instead. That's sin. I want you to see what, cleanse your hands, you mistakers. Mistakers. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Let's call it what it is. I sin because I'm a sinner by nature. I mean, I need to be delivered from what I am, not just what I do. See, we, we sin because we are sinners. We're not merely sinners because we sin. See, we're born in sin. We're, we're born with this nature to sin. We're born that naturally wants to dine at the devil's table. It comes natural to us, it's appealing to us. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Man, this is tough language, isn't it? I'm telling you, this this is not how I would have written this letter. You realize I didn't write this, yes? I'm just the guy that's called to preach it. I'm not the one that wrote it. If I wrote this letter, it would be, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, you amazing, precious, awesome people. Cleanse your hands, you guys that have made a few mistakes, and purify your hearts, you wonderful lovely people that sometimes are schizophrenic spiritually it just comes out hey you guys are you bunch of you're double minded what's it mean to be double minded we say one thing and do another it's called being a hypocrite There's not a human being alive that hasn't been double-minded. There's not a human being alive, not one among us, that hasn't been a hypocrite. I hear people say sometimes, well, Pastor Phil, I don't go to church anymore. The church is full of hypocrites. Let me tell you what I say. Every time someone says that to me, I'll tell you, I I respond the same way every time. Well, you know, you really ought to come sometime. There's always room for one more. (laughs) Really, we'll give you the best seat we have. There's always room for one because every human being has been a hypocrite. Everyone has said one thing and done another. And for those that criticize the church for being full of hypocrites, that's like criticizing a hospital for being full of sick people. Of course. This is why Jesus came. This is exactly what he said. I haven't come for the righteous, as if there's anybody who's actually righteous, I've come for the sick. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to come for the sick among us, which is everyone. By his stripes, we are healed. He was flogged to buy our freedom. He was pierced to ease our pain. And Isaiah said, by his stripes, we are healed. Of course, we've all walked in hypocrisy. We've all been double-minded. We've all come to church on Sunday and sang praises with our lips to go out on Monday and deny it with our life. You see, and quit being double-minded. At some point, you've got to decide, I'm not gonna make a peaceful coalition with my sin. I'm gonna let Jesus start turning over some tables in my life once and for all. I'm making a definitive moment. Listen, pastoral counseling, pastoral care, I'm gonna tell you what happens. By the time a couple or an individual comes for counseling, they're in a place of ruin. Their life is in a place of ruin, and what they really want is a solution. Pastor Phil, give me a solution. Listen, you don't need a solution. You need a change of direction. And that's what repentance is. It's a change of direction. It's not a solution for your sin. It's a change of direction. When I was on the SWAT team, I was a member of the color guard. So they taught us as we were, you know, doing the color guard thing and they taught us how to to do a, a 180, about face. It's like this. That's what repentance is. I'm going this way and then I'm going this way. See, what got you to that place of ruin is you were going this way. The only option is for you to turn around, repent of your sin, and go the other way. That's why he's saying, quit being double-minded, going this way one day, and going this way another day. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's saying, listen, take it seriously. When's the last time you lamented over your sin? When's the last time you mourned over your sin? He's saying, take it seriously. Do you understand that God mourns over your sin? Jesus laments over you. He weeps over you. In the same way a father or a mother weeps over that child who's fallen into sin and now they're living in a state of addiction or prison and you weep over them. Do you know God your father weeps over you because he loves you? And he knows the devastation of sin when you dine at the devil's table again and again and again. He knows where it's going to take you and leave you. No, this is not the words of somebody trying to lead a pep rally, is it? These are the words of somebody that's trying to bring revival, cleansing to the temple. And there is no greater feeling to lay your head down at night and know you are clean, that you are cleansed with a completely free conscience before God. Met a gentleman after church last week. Had a conversation with him out in the the hallway and I thought about this conversation all week. He said, Phil, honestly, I, I'm leaving here feeling guilty. I mean, I, I, I feel guilty right now. I, 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 I think about things now that I wouldn't even thought about a few years ago, like sin, right? I, I said, you know what? That is awesome. That's good. You know why? That's growth. The fact that you are growing in your sanctification means now you're sensitive to sin where before you never would have been. All of a sudden, as you grow to become more like Christ and the Holy Spirit of God who's holy and sinless is starting now to bring conviction of sin, your radar goes sky high. All of a sudden, you're aware of things you would have never been aware of before. I'm just warning you, listen, be careful that you review those movies you watched 20 years ago before you watch them again with your kids. I, this is me, right? So, I mean, 20 years ago, I'd watch movies and just just filth in it, wouldn't even think about it. That's an awesome movie. And all of a sudden, 20 years later, you got teenagers and you're like, man, you guys are gonna love this movie. And halfway through, you're like, Where, where's the remote? Get the, get, 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 get the remote. Guys, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I ever watched that. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. Embarrassed. I'll tell you why, because 20 years ago, I didn't think about sin the same way. My sensitivity wasn't even there. It should have been. I should have been offended. Like God is offended over sin, but But 20 years later you've been sanctified a little more and now your sensitivity is up in places it's never been. All of a sudden the radar is sky high. That's where God wants you to be. Now listen carefully. He doesn't want you walking around in guilt. Guilt and shame is of the enemy. Guilt and shame is of the enemy and will lead you to just another form of captivity. Guilt and shame will drive you to secrecy instead of true biblical community which is authenticity. Guilt and shame is not why Jesus came. Conviction is something altogether different. When you feel conviction of sin, that's different than being guilty over your sin. When you feel conviction of sin, that's the... Per work of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, it's, it's convicting you of that sin, either within or without. What should you do? Conviction should lead to confession. It's First John 1 and verse nine. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the state, honestly, that I now live, repenting of sin continually, living in a state of repentance because I'm aware increasingly that my heart is in a place of depravity. My heart is so quickly prone to wander. My heart quickly wants to go away. My heart quickly wants to run to the devil's dining table. And it's true of us all, every one of us. Greatest Christian who ever lived. Apostle Paul, in my opinion. I realize there are other great Christians, but let's just agree that the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. Yes? All right. Wrote half the New Testament, great Christian. Guess what he said in Romans 7:18? He wrote this about himself. All that is in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. There's nothing good in me. Apart from Jesus, there's nothing good. We all have hearts of depravity. Now listen, it's not just simply being sorry. Repentance is not just being sorry. Probably as a mom and a dad, you've heard this more than once from your children, but mom, I'm sorry but dad, I'm sorry. Now chances are the reason they're saying I'm sorry is because they've just gotten caught, all right? Repentance is not the same as being sorry for the consequences of the sin or the consequence of being caught. In fact, the apostle Paul taught there's two kinds of sorrow for our sin. There is worldly sorrow and there is godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is simply being sorry for where sin has left me. Worldly sorrow is simply being sorrow because I got caught and sorry that I have to now live with the consequences of that sin. But worldly sorrow is not the same as godly sorrow. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Do you see the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow produces death and condemnation, but godly sorrow produces life and salvation. And so not merely being sorry for our sin or guilty of our sin, but feeling true conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to transformation. That is what God is trying to do in all of our life as we start to let God turn over those tables in our life, no longer living with this peaceful coalition of our sin. It's time to make a war declaration on our sin. That's what God wants us to do. When Jesus went into the temple, he was declaring war on that sin. He was it's cleansing the temple and it's time for you and I to declare war on our sin and turn over some tables within 2nd Corinthians 10 and verse 3 for though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh you better believe we're at war whether you're at war with Satan he's at war with you whether you're at war with sin sin is at war with you Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Your warfare is never physical. It is always spiritual. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that word means physical, but mighty in God for the pulling down of stronghold. You let God do something in your life for all of a sudden he starts to wrench loose the stronghold of Satan. Sin gives Satan a little toehold. That little toehold becomes a handhold. All of a sudden eventually it's a stronghold. Satan is holding on to you in some area of your life but God has the power to pull it down he says casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God those high things refer to the idols in our hearts our hearts are idol factories constantly erecting idols false gods places of worship in our hearts and our lives He's saying, cast them down, turn over those tables, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring it into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse six, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Here's the reality. If you're not willing to punish your sin, your sin will punish you. And that's what the nature of warfare is. You see, if you're not willing to declare war on your sin, it's declaring war on you. If you're not willing to punish your sin, I'm promising you, your sin will eventually punish you. And what God wants us to do in some way is declare war on our sin. Because if you don't, your sin will eventually win. It will bring about your destruction. It will bring about your ruin. What's it mean to punish your sin? It means all bets are off. are no rules in warfare. It means to take radical measures. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Obviously, metaphorically, He wasn't teaching name yourself literally. He was simply teaching though that it takes radical measures, radical steps when you declare war. He said it would be better to enter in the kingdom of God with two healthy eyes than to enter into hell with uh, one eye in the kingdom of God and then enter into hell with two healthy eyes. He was teaching it's better to enter in the kingdom of God with just one hand than go to hell with both hands. He says, whatever it takes to start turning over some tables in your life. Some of us here honestly have completely been destroyed by sin and immorality and pornography. Listen, as a child of God, pornography is not your identity. It's time to tear it down, cast it down, turn over some tables in your life. Addiction does not have to be your destination. It's time to turn it down and turn over the tables in your life. I'm trying to Say today that if sin has a hold on you, it's time to flip some tables upside down. This is what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple. It was all bets off. He went off. When's the last time you went off on your sin? Like, I am not going to stay on this merry-go-round of sensuality and be Satan's little puppet one more day. I'm done. I don't have to stay. I can walk away. This addiction that has become my prison. Oh no, Jesus said, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Satan, I am not staying in this prison. I have the Son of God inside of me, and He came to set the prisoners free. I am free. I am not in captivity. I will not dine one more day with the devil. You see, He makes these tables look something like it's so beautiful and something that is so special, but hidden beneath all that beauty and that glitz and that glamour, is something that's actually ugly, and it is brutal, and it is bloody, and it's the very thing for which Jesus came to set us free. You see, it's sin. And sin is Satan's tool to take you to prison. You say, well Phil, what do I do? Every single day, you submit to God's authority you learn to repent of sin continually. You don't wait for Sunday to come back to church and appease God. Hopefully he's not mad at me. It's a state of repentance, Jesus. The moment you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit in thought or attitude or action, Jesus, forgive me. I'm coming back to you. Stand near you. Submit to God's authority, repent of sin continually, live in humility daily. Humility is that place of victory. See, an arrogant heart says, I got this. I don't need God. God, don't call me, I'll call you. The number one problem men have, women have, I'm talking about Christian men and Christian women, is a proud, arrogant heart that can't be taught anything, can't be told anything. Always somebody else's fault. It's my ex-wife's fault. It's my ex-husband's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. No, you are where you are. And yeah, I know there's always fault to go around, but you're not a victim. And whatever it was that got you there, you don't have to stay there. Begins with humility that says, Jesus, I need you and I need you desperately. The more you grow spiritually, the more you're aware of your desperate need for Jesus. Like, I'm not becoming less dependent 20 years later, I am more dependent. I'm more dependent than I've ever been on him. And this is what James means as he finishes up this lesson. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, the way up is when you go down. And that's the beginning of victory by way of humility. And here's the beautiful thing. The devil has a table. He wants you to come dine with him. Well, guess what? Jesus does too. Jesus is setting up a new table for you. He says in Romans 3 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Do you understand what this means? It means Jesus, he wants to have dinner with you. Jesus is setting a table for you. The devil set one, well guess what, Jesus does too. And if you have a humble enough heart to let him in, he's setting a table for you, he wants to dine with you, the implication is intimate friendship, intimate fellowship, the joy of knowing Jesus. And you can live and dine at the devil's table for the rest of your life. But friends, I have dined at both. And there is nothing like dining with Jesus. The true beauty, the true joy of a life that is holy. And Jesus makes everyone the same offer this morning. But to dine with Jesus is an invitation to come and die with Jesus, to let go of the life that you have, to live now a life that you could never have lived. And you see, the reality is brokenness over sin brings blessing from Him. And I'm gonna get on my knees right here at this platform right now, and I'm gonna ask Jesus to come turn some tables over in my life and yours and bring cleansing to the temple. And I guarantee I should not be alone when I hit my knees at this altar. You come quickly if you'd like Jesus to do the same. I'm asking our prayer team to come quickly and minister in prayer and pray for the Spirit of God to move within our hearts.